Crank, Crystal, Ice, Speed, Poor Man's Cocaine. They are all interchangeable sayings to describe meth. Once at the front of medicine, prescribing it to treat narcolepsy, asthma, or an even weight loss, now its backward cooking still brings the initial reaction, streamlining, use phosphorus and iodine to reduce the ephedrine into a crystallized form. In the 1980s, the United States began tightening down regulations of ephedrine, the precursor used in the cook process. Now, most countries have put a limitation on how much pseudoephedrine, the common poor man ingredient, a person could buy, but it provides very little to Dieter, those who crave it the most. Those with one taste, and they are hooked. With each bump, the user will need more and more to even have a shot at chasing that feeling that they felt with their first high. Some are so driven by the craving, they even set up unstable cook sites and janky one-story roadside hotels. Each batch is as unique to its cook as the special is to a chef. Some will make names for themselves by producing Primo Crystal and knowing when it's time to move. The less they are caught, the longer their product can stay on the street, giving them the best chance possible to make as much money as possible. And generally feeding their own addiction in the process. Those who fail are lucky when their cook sites are shut down versus blowing themselves up when an instability becomes too great and they are too strung out to care. The further anyone gets intertwined in this case of Kathy and Danny Freeman and the missing Ashley and her best friend Laura, the more the turn leads us right back to this drug. Rumors will keep swirling as to what everyone thinks happened in the early morning hours of December 30th, 1999. Unfortunately, at this time, the rumors are just that. The case saw its first arrest in the spring of 2018 with Ronnie Dean Busick. The other two accused passed away in the years that this case had grown cold. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight, we clean up the ash that is left behind with this case. Every avenue had ended in a dead end until the spring of 2018, and we saw the first arrest in the case. And this is the first time that both Ashley and Laura were publicly addressed as being dead. The wild stories that have haunted this case continue to do so. So many seem to know something about the morning in 1999, know about the girls, but somehow there's not a one willing to speak about what they know. Both the Bibles and the Freemans have been the face of this tragedy for far too long, but without either girl being brought home, this case is far from over. But the fact that two out of three suspects in this case are dead and the other is known to not be able to keep a secret, it could be far longer before we see this case come to a close. Stay with me as the terrifying and mythical nightmare finally finds the light at the break of a new day. Warning. This episode contains graphic detail of murder, corruption, molestation, and adult language. Listener's discretion is advised. If you feel any of this may be too much for you, have someone listen with you or for you. Good 
Good evening, my true crime nerds. We have a little bit of house cleaning to get out of the way tonight. We wrap up season three tonight with the finale of the When the Smoke Clears. But fear not, the show is coming back just in time to celebrate the one-year anniversary with a whole new case. You awesome people have brought so much with your loyalty of listening each week, and I could not be more grateful for it all. So in order to keep providing you with the best show possible, we are taking this time to work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help the show, you can always head over to the truecrimelibrarian.com and make a donation or shop in the new merch store and reward yourself in return. Of course, you can always help without a dime leaving your pocket by reviewing and recommending the show. Be sure to use the hashtag the true crime librarian so that we can add you to the ever-growing list of true crime nerd love. Finally, let's spread a little of that love. And as with the last two episodes, tonight's true crime nerd love goes out to my father-in-law. It still doesn't feel real, but we know you are there. Enough of that. Let's get to what you all came here for, the true crime. So last week, we ended off with OSBI agent Nutter results of the search warrant that had been executed on the Glover's property, where a 12 by 12 section of carpet was removed from the home, but proved to be anything and everything except for human blood. When asked what the stain was, agent Nutter gave several different responses and none of them actually matching. A report filed with the District Court of Ottawa County may have more to do with what happened at the Freeman's Land the morning of December 30th. This is one of the weirdest leads I've ever seen chased down in all of the time that I have been overly curious about true crime. You, I was, I was trying to explain this to somebody earlier today and, and the, I, it was perfect. It fit because we have these chat minds and it feels like you go down these different tunnels in these mines and you think you're getting somewhere. There's some distance in there and then you run into a dead end and you got to turn around and you got to go back and start at the beginning. That is what this case is like. That is what it has been like to research this case. It really gets my nerves on edge because it doesn't follow an order in any kind. You just kind of you, you 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 take it and you go. So tonight I'm going to do a little bit different in my reporting or uh, storytelling or whatever you want to call it. Usually I have very specific points because I have a timeline and I have a timeline with this case, but it just doesn't flow like a timeline. So we're going to tell it a little bit differently. The report that was filed out in the District Court of Ottawa County, it introduced us to a man named Jeremy Jones and a little hole in the wall roadside motel called the Frontier Motel. Let me paint you a picture. I'm talking like creepy movie opening scene, rundown motel, pitch dark. The only thing that is lighting up anything is the really bad neon work that flashes out of sync with the lightning that periodically is brightening the sky after a crack of thunder. I'm talking like down home, scary movie. We're fixing to eat some popcorn and enjoy the crap out of this, right? This is where we're going to take today and, and this is where we're at with this case. Jeremy Jones. Oh, the little hole in the wall Frontier Motel, it was out on 66 and there's this fat man with gross pit stains, really bad facial hair. His name's BB. Hey, I'm just 
just FYI, guys, I am repeating what I, it was described to me and it was perfect. I had to, I had to share, but the particular night we were talking about, there was Jeremy and he was the whole day he had spent walking up and down in front of this office of the motel. And the way it makes it sound like the only room that is facing 66 is the front of the motel office. Everybody else faces inwardly, right? So there BB is, he's trying to jerry-rig something with some copper wiring and Jeremy keeps walking by and he can see him. First couple times, it's not bad. Second, third time, I'm going to kick you. By the sixth time, BB taps on the window with the knife that he's working with and he's like, you know, cool it. Cool your heels because you're working my last freaking nerve. Well, Jeremy had always kind of stayed at this or, or he was drawn to this motel. And sometimes he would actually trade his services for rent in the room. So he'd usually clean up, do, do the crap that Bibi didn't want to do. And this would earn him a night with somewhere to sleep. But this particular time, there is a man known as Cowboy. He is renting one of these rooms and he is currently in there cooking meth. And Jeremy Jones is like a bloodhound when it comes to methamphetamines. He can smell it out mile away. So he knows that there's something going on and he wants to buy from Cowboy. And Cowboy is like day three of a binge where, you know, just you know, get like three or four hours of sleep one night and the next day you're completely a crank. This this is where Jer this is where Cowboy is three days later. I mean, you take take that little uh, that it takes you to lose your patience after a short amount of sleep and you go four days without it. It's a hundred times worse than times 50. So you've got this little tweaker what, running up and down, just pacing. I can picture this in my mind. It's hilarious. I just want y'all to know. So there's a little tweaker running up and down in front of the road of the motel. You've got this cowboy hick cooking methamphetamines. And every so often that little tweaker is running over, knocking on the door and running back over to his spot to keep walking. That's how I'm picturing this in my head because any other way, I don't think it really fits. So you've got Jeremy Jones doing 90 different things, right? Well, he, <laughs> in the room where Cowboy is cooking, he's got a couple hot plates, some beakers. He, I mean, he's all of the components he needs to chemically make some of the finest meth in the northeastern Oklahoma area. He's done it. He's doing it. That Cowboy was known for that. He didn't get caught. He moved often. And he had a really good recipe. And but the, the, the problem with all of this is Cowboy is trying to get as much product made as he can while apparently like giving a dog a treat with Jeremy Jones. Well, Jeremy has decided you're only keeping me enough on the downhill side of a high and I don't get that initial rush. So I'm going to keep knocking and keep knocking. Well, he knocks one too many times that evening and Cowboy jumps up from where he's cook cooking and pulls the door open and he's ready to fight. He's there like he's gonna beat this guy's ass. Cowboy also says he didn't like Jeremy Jones because Jeremy was a rat. Well, 
you've got Jeremy Jones, little tweaker, running down the road. You got a cowboy with a cowboy hat, cowboy boots, and boxers chasing him. If you had seen that in the early morning hours, it'd be something you would never forget. Well, it seems like the only people to see this scene actually go down are a couple of police officers. And they pick Jeremy up for public intoxication and possession of drug paraphernalia. Now, whatever happened to Cowboy who was chasing him, it's never really clear if he, you know, got detained or did he he catch it in time and be like, get the hell out of here. There's no, no, no clear like how it ends for Cowboy, but we know that Jeremy Jones is picked up. And so... The statement from the police officer, Corley, says the subject was running down with another subject chasing him. Once I made contact with him, I observed a very strong odor of an alcoholic beverage on his breath, bloodshot eyes, and slurred speech. While patting him down, blank, and it's literally something has been crossed out, a blank, again, this stuff has been crossed out of the statement, use syringe was found in sock okay so after he was miranda and admitted he admitted to using that that same syringe to inject meth earlier in the evening so there's this report that was filed december 30th 1999 jeremy got put in the drunk tank he slept it off bailed out for eleven hundred dollars around 10 20 in the morning but here's the thing OSBI agent Nutter happened to be in Ottawa County Sheriff's Office that same morning as well when he got the call about the fire in Welsh. Now, I know none of this shit means anything to this case. This half of the story, you're just like, what the hell? Where, like, she went off on a tangent. This doesn't make sense. Well, I need to introduce you to John Paul Chapman. He gets to talking in 2004, over 700 miles away in Alabama, about this very evening back in Ottawa County in Oklahoma. John Paul Chapman, in 2000, in January of 2001, he was looking for a new place. He was on the run from the law back home. In 1996, he was uh, charged with three counts of rape, but he was able to plead him down to sexual battery. So essentially he was just a he was sentenced probation and missed out on jail time. Well, his girlfriend at the time, now this I found very interesting. She also has a rape story from John. And I guess that's how they got hooked up. But I don't know. I, you know, each their own, you know. She called him what was known as um, a determined man. When he sees something that he wants, he'll find a way to get it. And he knows that He's he's very knowing. He's very capable. He's a gentleman. He's he's charming. He can be romantic. But the moment you put meth in his veins, he became paranoid, violent, and would lie just to lie. So while down in Alabama, John meets a woman named Vicky. That's her Vicky Freeman. There's no relation to the Freemans that of this case. Okay, two different things. So on the last day of John Paul Chapman's probation back home, he was handed another rape charge. And this time he decided he was, he, that's how he was leaving. You know, peace out. Got, um, mm, no. So 
he's on the lam. He's he's wanted back in Ottawa County in Oklahoma. And now he's in Mo- Mobile, Alabama with his new girlfriend, Vicki Freeman. Once they get together, they move over to Villa Rica, Georgia. And from there, John starts working on jobs, just whatever he can kind of get his hands on. But it isn't long after they moved in that reports in their neighborhood started trickling in and they all seemed to tie back to John. He, you know, there was a teenage girl that says that he gave her the creeps because, you know, he just like couldn't keep his eyes to himself. And her mother agreed he was, if he came over and knocked on the door, he knocked on the door, ran around, knocked on the back door and ran around. And by the time they got a door open, he was gone. So they were having these issues with him. And then in October of 2003, John was arrested for indecent exposure. He says he was just taking a piss on the other side of his truck. One of the neighbors saw him and said that he exposed himself. Here's where things get interesting. John's fingerprints are taken because he's been arrested. He's, you know, he had to go through the booking. And they're entered into the FBI's fingerprint system and nothing comes back. Okay, so you would think that with his three rape charges from 1996, we would see some fingerprints from that case. Nothing, nothing pops up. So he's decided this is like a criminal's dream come true. The system is failing to identify John Paul. And this only further urged him to keep taking things that he wanted. His fingerprints would be entered into the system an additional three times. And each one brought back nothing with any priors. So in 2003, and when he was picked up for, you know, peeing by his truck, you would think the second time he's picked up, there would be prints in the system. There's not. The third time he's picked up, there's nothing from the first two incidents because his fingerprints never got into the system correctly. Nothing is coming back to him. And he's feels like he's just got this get out of free jail card. So he's running around doing crap he shouldn't be doing. But, you know, Vicky and John are asked to leave their neighborhood. At the time, Vicky wasn't aware of how much was coming from John and how much of the problem he was causing in the neighborhood. Well, they end up splitting and John goes back to Mobile, Alabama. Well, he finds work because we've got Hurricane Ivan fixing to hit the coast. He can get quick work. He'd exhausted everything back in Villarica. And now he just needs a place to stay. Well, he hooks up with this couple, Mark and Kim Bentley. And they have decided to seek higher ground with Ivan on the horizon. Well, Chapman says, you know, I'm going to stay back with your cousin and we're going to do the repairs that are needed as the storm comes through. Chapman ends up lightening the Bentley's load during this time with Hurricane Ivan. He takes from them a 25 caliber handgun. And the following day after stealing the gun, the Bentleys finally return home, but so did their neighbor, Lisa Nichols. On September 17th of 2004, John attempted to rape Lisa Nichols under the threat of violence before shooting her in the head three times, dousing her in the room with gasoline before setting it on fire. Does sound all familiar? Yeah, me too. 
So the next day when Lisa's daughters come over, they discover their mother. They call, they scream out, and Mark Bentley and his cousin end up going over to see what's going on, try help them. But John acted as though he couldn't be bothered with this trivial stuff. Later during his appeals, we find that there's a phone record submitted, and it's Chapman calling Vicky from the home of Lisa on the night she was murdered. This only added to the fact that he really was guilty, and he is ultimately handed the death sentence. But John and his fingerprints are entered into the FBI system one more time, and still nothing came back. So it's reported that after John Paul told police what he did, how he killed Lisa, he did all of this to make a phone call back home to his mother. And for whatever reason, and I mean whatever reason, they decided to trace that call and see who he was calling. Well, he was calling Miss Gina Beard back in Miami, Oklahoma. Her son is a local fugitive, and it only takes one phone call to Miami to figure all of this out. Miami, they ended up faxing over a picture of what Jeremy Jones looked like because this is the son of Gina Beard. And it's one look and you've got John Paul Chapman. So the real John Paul Chapman is was serving a 25-year sentence for armed robbery. His mother in a bar one night decided what the hell gave away his information and that's how Jeremy got his hands on it and was able to obtain the identity. So Jeremy Jones is back to being Jeremy Jones and Chapman is back to being Chapman. He's going to want his sentence after they get done with Jeremy. But before he stops talking, he says, there's something you should know about some girls in Oklahoma. Jeremy Jones, the pro prolific serial killer in the South, is claiming to have ties to this case. Mobile County Sheriff's Office Detectives Paul Birch and Mitch McRae, they took down Jeremy's confession for the murders of Ashley and Laura, even though he never actually says their name during the confession. Jeremy's eyes are said to have evil coming out of them. This is by Craig County Sheriff-elect uh, Souter. This also reflects Cowboy's words when he was giving testimony about the night in, you know, way back in Ottawa County when he chased Jeremy Jones halfway up the road. He said, quote, everything about him was black. His eyes, his hair, all of it. His soul was black. Though most people could see right down to what he was actually made of. Jeremy took advantage of his confession about Ashley and Laura. Kind of a tit for tat kind of thing. Like, I'll tell you this if you give me that. His information was pieced together forcefully at best. Um, his stories don't make up. They don't line up with what we know happened that night. And not being able to remember if Danny was alive or dead after he shot him because using math was his excuse as to how he didn't have the parts of the story correct, right? Well, the more you get into this confession, the more that you... Like, it makes your brain hurt, okay? According to Jeremy, Danny owed his friend Marvin Rodden some money, outstanding debt on some meth. Rodden never actually saying for Jeremy Jones to go collect the debt, although he is handed a hand-drawn map to the Freeman trailer. 
He gets, says he went up a short driveway. We know that sucker is long. They put 150 people out there sifting through ash. It's a long driveway. What kind of stairs led up to the Freeman's front door? Things like that. Jeremy was getting most things that we know to be fact, true, fic, you know, wrong. And his, his whole claim to it was, well, meth made me do it. Well, the author, Jax Miller, who did Hell in the Heartland, um, she did an awesome job with this book. But anyways, she finds out during her time of investigating this whole entire case and hearing this story about Jeremy Jones, John Paul Chapman, and how his confession didn't really, like, we have components not lining up that should, those are simple. You know, she gets to digging, and Marvin Rodden, the friend that Jeremy said Danny owed money to had actually died two years before the fire. So it's becoming clear quickly that he didn't know what had gone down in the Freeman home that morning any more than Danny owed his friend money two years after his death. So apparently false confessions are a pretty common thing. You know, something I would think that would go the other way. I, you know, I don't want to say I did that, you know. I get myself in enough trouble, I don't need any help, kind of thing. What I didn't expect to see is how Jeremy's confession, it's not coached, it's not led, it's, he's not lying because he's confessing to a totally different crime that happened in 1996 in Carriage Hills, where Danny Oakley and Doris Harris were both shot and then their trailer was set on fire. Jeremy is still considered a suspect in the murder of of Doris and Danny by Doris's sister. So he's not misremembering something. Meth isn't meth. He has a totally different crime and this crime is still considered unsolved. It's not clear of what is going on with Jeremy's involvement with that, but Jax was able to line the story up to what they knew about this case with Danny Oakley and Doris Harris. And she's like, he's not can, you know, saying he did something he didn't do. He's, he did it, but it's just not the right case. Now, whether you want to rule out Jeremy Jones as being somebody as a possible, that's, I mean, it's here or there. It's depending on how you put the two stories together because it's not entirely impossible that the girls ran from the burning trailer, stumbled on Jeremy Jones, who says he was out driving around that night, and think that he's going to go and take get them some help. And instead, he takes them up to the mines in Galena before killing them and throwing them into the mines and making it back over to Route 66 in Ottawa County to run down the streets. <laughs> after picking a fight with this cowboy and end up arrested for intoxication in public and paraphernalia. None of this is entirely impossible. It's a, it's a big time crunch. And I think that's where people have a hard time wrapping their, their mind around this. Could it be? But the thing that is just mind blowing is that it's very possible he is confessing to another crime. And he's yet to be convicted of it, I think. Um, 
he was such a smooth talker that he could get himself in and out of these stories and leave you wondering, you know, what the hell did I just hear? And that's how I feel. And that's how I feel when I try to explain it to you guys is what did I just say? How does any of that make sense? But when, like I said, we have to go down a tunnel. Not all the tunnels have an exit. So Jeremy Jones, John Paul Chapman, whatever, he's a tunnel that we really thought was going to lead us out the other end because it just fit his MO. And to this day, to this day, looking at this case, I can see the similarities and I'm thinking, this is not good, guys. Like how many, it's, in t it's, it's what he likes to do. Shoot him in the head, put, set them on fire. And he took what he wanted. And that's, those two girls were easy for him. So I don't know, but he, you know, the story is going to take us somewhere else. Let me introduce you to someone who seems to have something to offer to the case with his piece of the story. His name's Charles Kreider, and he and Danny met on a welding job before Danny started having the frequent migraines. And the two shared a love for smoking weed and growing it. They ended up exchanging plants in a kind of who is growing better kind of thing. But Kreider got in with Danny when Danny lost his mother plant and had to go to Kreider to get some of the females that he had traded so he could get his growth back up. So Charles said that Danny had become, him, him and Danny had become best friends and that the Freemans were some of the best people he could meet in a lifetime. But there is something, but there are some that say that you could, quote, hear those missing girls' voices from Charlie Crowder's old place, end quote. The two, Danny and, and Crowder, grew close, even with one being on Oklahoma's side of the state line and the other on the Kansas side. Their crops couldn't get affected, so they were both growing each other's crops. So if Danny got caught and shut down, it didn't affect the crop that Crowder had, and that's the way this kind of read. Well, Crowder says that Danny began getting tangled up with meth about two years before the actual murders. Now, Charles is the only one to ever claim to see Danny actually use meth. He claims that suspicion surrounding him came from the deathbed uh, confession of David Pennington, claiming that Kreider was on the list of suspects, but it never came to be a full circle until Kreider was arrested for murder himself. Now, we have this, like, oh my God, this ball of crap, right? So, Kreider is accused of killing his this lady named Judith Shrum. And he says that what happened that night is he went and watched a football game with some friends. And he was at home by 9 before he went out at 11 p.m. to hunt for beavers and until the morning. So, he couldn't have been there to kill Judith Schramm, that didn't make sense, right? But DNA would later be used to put him at the scene of the crime when the murder happened. So Kreider, he ends up in prison for murder. 
Now, Kreider had some things that he wanted to share with investigators, but he was very adamant that he wouldn't do so until he got out. Well, that is a lot of hoping and praying that you, you get to walk through that gate because sometimes people don't come home from that, even though they're supposed to. Whatever Kreider has to say, and since he's holding on to it till he gets out, there is the old saying, there's more than one way to skin a cat. So once Lorraine had investigators up at Kreider's looking in a well, she got a tip on her Facebook page that Kreider may have mentioned or they believe that he put the girls down the well down his property. So Lorraine's like, Psh, let's go. She has no qualms. She's, we're going to investigate it. And we're going to do it right. Lorraine and Jay, they're flooded with, look for the girls here or there or, you know, and every time Kreider's name is coming up, but so is Phil Welsh's name. It's starting to come back up. So you have all of this going on. So once Lorraine has everybody out there, it's time to figure out what's going on. When you heard Welsh's name, then up comes David Pennington's and Ronnie Bussick's. With Welsh having a trailer close to Pitcher, the story of Welsh, Bussick, and Pennington begin to form on the base that we're looking on Kreider's land because we say that he, he got rid of the girls, but it's Welsh, Bussick, and Pennington that are really the people. But Kreider's name doesn't seem to be falling off the back end as the story continues to, to progress of how he was guilty into how Phil Welsh and Ronnie Bussick and David Pennington start taking the main role. So you've got all of this going on and Lorraine's, you know, like, you know, we're out here. Let's get to it. They're told that there's a concrete slab in the basement of where the house used to stand. Apparently, Charles Kreider's home went up in flames shortly following the conviction and the selling of his home. And those in Shitopa decided to celebrate. Now that Lorraine had all these people out here, she's like, we're going to follow as many of these leads that are coming through as we can. So there was cameras being sent down wells, hoping to find something that the searchers before them could have missed. They have an excavation of dirt that it, that covers where that concrete slab is said to be. So it's digging. None of these searches performed on Crider's land ever turn up anything. We don't find the girls in the concrete slab. We don't find them in the well. There's no evidence that anything happening there that involved Ashley and Laura. It's devastating to hear, but the way that Lorraine and Jay looked at this is, okay, that's another one we checked off. We're getting closer. One more closer. In 2017, Charles Kreider was released from prison and now he was ready to talk. And he said that Danny had been really eaten up with the corruption surrounding Shane's death and that one day they were smoking and he asked Kreider, you know, hey, I need I need you to be my getaway. And Kreider asked him why. And Danny shares with him, you know, I think Craig County Officer Hayes killed my son intentionally. And I'm gonna I'm gonna kill him now. Like that's what I've settled on on how to deal with all of this. 
Charles says that it, had he not told him that he was going to go kill David Hayes, he would have drove him. But since he knew what he was warning, he refused to help his friend out. Danny had a relationship with his son that he wished could be different. And I think that's why this was eaten up on him so bad. I do believe that he probably asked Charles to be like, hey, we're going to go take out the cop, right? And Charles is like, mm, not me. But I don't think anybody who has been mentioned thus far is completely innocent. Because Charles will tell OSBI agent Tammy Ferrari something that really sticks out like a sore thumb. And this agent Ferrari is who took over once Nutter retired. Thank God for that. About a week or two before the fire, some people came over to the Freeman's house. And according to, to Charles Crider and Glenn Freeman, Danny's dad, Danny was not friendly during this visit. He, they both claimed that Danny said something along the lines of, quote, don't bring that killer here ever again, end quote. Danny was known to protect what was his with the threat of his shotgun. And you can't help but think that maybe a warning shot would get fired once or twice. So let's go back to the shotgun shell that Mark Hayes found that afternoon of the fire and insisted it be bagged and tagged. Was that a warning shot to scare off those who shouldn't have been there the night of the Freeman house? Well, you know, when it was first noticed, my gut said that it, it went with the murder weapon. And it still could be, but it could also mean that the murder weapon belonged to Danny. Not the people who murdered him and his family, making it even harder to figure out who the hell pull, pulled this trigger, right? Well, according to Charles, Danny began selling weed in exchange for his meth that he was now dabbling in. These three people showed up wanting to buy his entire crop, and from the sound of it, they were only giving him one option, and Danny didn't want to have anything to do with it. In the end, was Charles innocent in the murder of his best friend, his, his best friend's wife, and the abduction of Ashley and Laura? Well, yes and no. Because he, if he knew these things, you should have talked about them sooner in the investigation. I'm not entirely convinced that Kreider doesn't know something. Uh, this whole thing with him is a little shady. And I encourage you to go. And If you like this, there's so much more to learn that I'm not talking about. Because it's, it's so overwhelming with the amount of just breakoffs that we have to turn around on. Thinking that Kreider could be a part of the people who killed Danny and his family is asinine, but with the tales that have rocked this investigation, you really can't put anything past anyone until the announcement was made in April of 2018 and there had been arrests made in the murder investigation. Ronnie Dean Buzz Bessick, creepily overweight man, was the only one of the three people accused that was still alive. His, his photo circulates around this case, and it's of him in his standard-issue dark blue DOJ uniform. His hands are cuffed to encompass his belly, and his feet are shackled over some socks and orange slides of sandals. And the, if you watch a video of him, he talks, but um, if you watch the way he walks, 
He's walking with a limp and using a cane. However, once he's inside and away from the cameras, the limp and the, the necessary cane, no more. He was simply playing the sympathy card. How could they arrest a man barely able to walk for something so heinous? That's how I'm feeling about this. Ronnie's not an innocent person. Looking at him, you know he's creepy. And you can tell he's the creepy uncle just by looking at him. You know, the one that gets invited to the family reunions, even though he's creepy because he's family. That, that's Ronnie. He's a vile man. He made into windows to his own niece at the age of eight. He had a rap sheet that consisted mostly of drug-related crimes that made him a frequent flyer in jail. Some would call him clever. Others would call him dumb as a box of hair. But one thing's for certain. He wasn't capable of being like in the top of the pyramid of these three people to have committed this crime. But, you know, he's not capable of being at the top, but he's capable of participating. The family said they do believe him. Bussock's family say they do believe that he doesn't know where the girls are because he was so loose-lipped that had he actually known anything about the girls, he would have already said something about it. The affidavit that put Ronnie in cuffs consisted of testimony from 12 people claiming the Welsh, the tweaker scared off by Pryor and Dugan. Remember talking about him in episode one? The investigation was the mastermind behind the plan and the motive was a drug deal gone bad. Danny owed him some money. According to one that had picked up a withering away Ronnie, Ronnie was just simply playing on this person's soft heart and poke and needed a meal. But he gets him, Ronnie gets into the car with this person. They take off to the grocery store. Ronnie begins to tell him about how his involvement with the Freeman murders in the abduction of the girls, or, or what they like to call them, them, them two bitches. So he's talking about, you know, what what happened in that trailer and picture you know we raped them we tortured them and busick said that that they actually kept the girls alive for several days but he wasn't the shooter of danny and kathy however he was asked to stay back with david pennington to light the trailer on fire so busick was just basically there to to be you know you do kind of thing it's at this point that this poor person that took him to the grocery store is just like, what the hell? Because Busick keeps going on and on and on. And finally, he says, you know, they ain't ever going to find them bodies, neither. And at this point, the witness is like, get the fuck out of my truck. <laughs> and just kicks him out. So they part ways. Like I said, I believe the family because of the way he seemed to consistently use the story of what happened with Lauren, Ashley and Danny and his wife as a form of like, I'm, I'm, I'm a big bad guy, you know, kind of thing. He did. Had he known where the girls would be? It was just another thing to be like, look at what I, I know, look at what I am capable of. Now let's go back to something from the very beginning that I told you to remember in episode one. And it was a little piece of paper that was found at the end of the Freeman driveway, right where it meets the road. It was thrown by the wayside by Agent Nutter and not collected as evidence until August of 2017. And the card was that insurance card that would lead them back to Bussick and then to Welch and Pennington. Had Anyone looked at this piece of paper long enough, it contained some of the most damning evidence for this case. 
The card was registered to Phil Welsh's girlfriend at the time. She claimed to not know the Freemans and did not know how her card got all the way out there. But she said that Phil didn't know Danny. Another girlfriend came in right behind her and she would tell investigators that she had overheard Welsh, Pennington, and Busick talking about what happened at the Freemans and about the two missing girls. And and Phil Welsh had a the reward poster for the girls hanging up in his house. Now, Pennington and Busick, they are responsible for setting the fires, or so the story goes. She also tells them that Welsh had a soft leather briefcase that held all the Polaroid pictures that were taken of the girls when they were tied up and gagged. Here's the thing. When, we, when I was going through this story and I was reading through Hell in the Heartland, Jax Miller brought up a brick that we're all been staring at trying to make heads or tails. Like it, it's, we can tell what it is, but we can't. It's right there on the tip of your tongue. You don't know what to call it. And I didn't realize this is what I was staring at until she brought it up in the book. And it's had they investigated this insurance card the day it was found, this could possibly be a totally different case. Ashley and Laura could be alive. And their testimony would have put away the two people who killed Ashley's parents. Things could have been different had the investigation not been such a joke to those who should have taken it seriously, taken it seriously. All three men's names, they come up at earlier points in this investigation. And had they been looking at that insurance card, things could just be different. In 2007, Phil Welsh passed away due to complications with ALS. His face will forever hang with David Pennington and Ronnie Busick is the people accused of this crime. In 2015, David also passed away with COPD, leaving us just one person to bring to justice in this tale. But without finding the girls, is this case really closed? In April of 2021, the case broke headlines again when the crime scene investigators began digging at what was the root cellar at 629 South Ottawa. The former tenant was David Pennington, and his stepdaughter told investigators that she was under strict instructions to stay away from the cellar. The ex-wife confirmed she was also told by Pennington that there was something in there he didn't want the two of them to see. About two weeks before Pennington and his family moved, he was seen filling in the root cellar with dirt. According to Busick, Pennington told him that he put the girls in a cellar. As part of his deal, if Ronnie could tell law enforcement where the girls were buried, he would get five years forgiven from his 15-year sentence with a mandatory 10 years served. All of this had to occur before the sentencing trial that was set to go in front of the judge. Ronnie recanted his story and has since been sentenced, so the deal went out the window. Whether Ronnie really has an idea where these girls are or not isn't the point, but you can't help but wonder why he hasn't told them where they're at if he really did know. This case is one to stick in the back of your head as it cycles through the headlines. The only difference is we will all be wishing this will be it and the Bibles will finally have their daughter back and all were at peace. 
true crime cases come and go, but this is one you hear and then ask, what the hell did I just hear? It has legends grander than the Loch Ness, a fear shared by an entire community, and wonder if the nightmare will ever end. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight. Season 2 has been one hell of a ride with some big name cases, growth of the show, thanks to my awesome OGs who have happily developed an amazing listenership with recommendation and reviews. Although the show will be on hiatus, we will still be following the true crime world over on Facebook at the True Crime Librarian Discussion Group. Join nerds just like yourself. As always, I leave you with one last line. At the end of the day, let there be no excuses, no explanations, no regrets. Much love, the True Crime Librarian. <laughs>